This is episode 58 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are How to Revive a Dead Car Battery with Aspirin or Epsom Salt How to Stockpile Emergency Water And because it's Wednesday, we have an interview with Tess Pennington of ReadyNutrition.com Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey guys, just want to let you know that the Preppers University is still going on. Uh, you still have time to register for that if you're interested in it. I am going to put that uh, link in the show notes. Uh, you, you know, the, the big draw there is that you get to do live webinars with uh, Prepper and survival experts uh, all you know from all over the place. There was just so many uh, the last time I checked. So uh, if that's something that's interesting to you, you, or of interest to you, you're going to want to go check that out. Uh, I think it's a great deal. Even if you miss the flash sale, I think it's still a great deal to, to get in on it with all the value that it provides. Also, if you get a chance, come by the website and share out this episode, episode 58, uh, on social media. We really appreciate that uh, when you do that. Uh, it means a whole, whole lot to us. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, it would really mean a whole lot if you would review the podcast uh, that just does a whole lot for the podcast out there in the search engines and iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, but it just lets other people know that it is a valuable podcast. So if you're finding value uh, from it in um, you can't, you are listening to it on iTunes or Stitcher, I would really appreciate a review on that. All right, let's go ahead and get started because we've got some really good stuff today. Uh, this first article comes to us from PreppersWill.com. And the article is How to Revive a Dead Car Battery with Aspirin or Epsom Salt. So let's go ahead and get started on this one. Nothing ruins your day like having to deal with a dead car battery. While this may be annoying during normal days when you are in a hurry, the situation can escalate and you will lose valuable time. There are a few tricks to revive a dead car battery that you can use during desperate times. Some of these tricks are not new and people have been using them when no other options were available. These are emergency solutions and they will come in handy during a crisis. As with everything related to emergency preparedness, you have to rely on your wits to get out of a difficult situation. It may seem weird to use aspirin or Epsom salt on your battery, but I guarantee it really works. Follow these steps to revive a dead car battery. How to revive a dead car battery with aspirin. For this to work, you will need aspirin tablets, rubber gloves, water, and a screwdriver. You should already have all these items in your home as they are common household items. Every first aid kit has aspirin, so there shouldn't be any problem using a few tablets. Follow these steps. To revive a dead car battery, you will need to pry the cell cover of the battery with a screwdriver. This may become a problem for certain battery types since some lids are sealed permanently shut. Wear gloves while opening the lids and pay attention not to get battery acid on yourself. Crush two or three aspirin tablets for each cell of the battery and carefully put the powder in the battery. Now add water to fill the battery to the proper level. Carefully reseal the cell cover. Let the battery sit for almost one hour before you start the engine. Once the engine starts, drive to your local service station to replace the battery. Why did it work? This is actually an old trick to revive a dead car battery and service mechanics are using it on a regular basis. 
If you are wondering why this is working and how the aspirin is helping your battery, the answer is quite simple. The acetosalicylic acid is the as in the aspirin combines with the sulfuric acid in the battery. This creates a chemical reaction and allows one more charge. This is enough to start the car and drive to a service station. The water is also needed because it helps restore the electrolyte in the battery. What you need to know. This is temporary or a temporary solution. While it will give your car battery a boost, it will shorten the overall lifespan of your battery. It is a recommended solution to revive a dead car battery when you get stranded in the middle of nowhere. Since every car should have a first aid kit, you should have no problem finding aspirin. Typical car batteries contain six cells and each cell generates roughly two volts for a total of 12 volts. As a general rule, to start your engine, the battery must discharge approximately 12 volts at 200 amps. So just FYI there when you're when they're talking about uh, the article said you should have this stuff in your home and then maybe if you're stranded you're going to use this if you're stranded uh, in the middle of nowhere. So you want to have some aspirin, some gloves, some uh, a, a screwdriver to pry uh, the cover off and then also some water uh, somewhere. And that shouldn't be a big deal. You know, if you drink a water bottle and you, how many times does do you drink a water bottle you don't finish it and it's just kind of sitting there and uh, what I've done is I just kind of tighten it up really well and have put it you know, put it under under my uh, my truck uh, seat, the the back seat, and just kind of sits there. There's a you know a compartment there where I keep it, just in case I ever need it. I mean, not to drink because it's you know the plastic and it gets hot, uh, definitely in Houston. But uh, it's there if I ever need it for whatever reason. All right, continuing on, how to revive a dead car battery with Epsom salt. For this method to work, you you will need Epsom salt, at least four tablespoons, and distilled water. Additionally, you should have rubber gloves and a screwdriver, but also a measuring spoon to make sure you get the salt quantity right. This method takes more time compared to the first one, and you will need a battery charger. Follow these steps. Just like I said before, you should first check the battery lid that the battery lid is not sealed permanently shut. If that's not the case, use a screwdriver to carefully remove the cap from the cells of the battery. Wear safety gloves and glasses to avoid getting battery acid on yourself. Measure four tablespoons of Epsom salt and dissolve it in just enough distilled water. Mix until you create a liquid that can be poured into the battery cells. Pour one tablespoon of the solution into each of the six cells of the battery. Once you are done, carefully seal the caps firmly. Recharge the battery on slow charge for 24 hours and the battery should be like new. Why did it work? When a battery loses its state of charge, it has become more of a base than an acid. So the electrical power it generates through the chemical reaction of the magnesium sulfate and the lead plates inside the battery has been reduced. The plates of the lead acid battery are often affected by lead sulfate buildup. To reduce the buildup and improve the overall battery performance, Epsom salt is added to the electrolyte of the acid battery. What you need to know. Operating on a car battery without safety equipment is not recommended. The batteries contain sulfuric acid, which is highly caustic. If you get it on your skin, you should flush with water immediately to avoid skin burns. Epsom salt is basically pure magnesium sulfate in powder form. This can be done two to three times before the battery is no longer able to be resurrected. It is worth it if you think about it, since the cost of materials needed is only a few dollars. 
Okay, so this is something that I don't know. I've never really heard about this one, and then especially, uh, you know, doing Pepper website. So this is a first for me. If anyone knows, when the author says that you can do it two or three times, are they talking about in the life of a battery or two or three times uh, in a row to get it charged up so that you can use it? Uh, because, you know, that's a big, big difference there uh, when you think about it. All right, continuing on. Additional tricks to save your battery using household items. You can also revive a dead battery. You can also use additional household items. The items needed for these methods are cheap and can be found in every house. Items such as baking soda, petroleum jelly, and soda are often used to revive a dead car battery. Baking soda. Baking soda is often used to revive a dead car battery, but you should never pour it inside the battery cell. It is only used to eliminate the corrosive buildup on the car battery terminal. All you need to do is mix three tablespoons of baking soda with one tablespoon of warm water. Now use an old toothbrush and scrub the terminals with the mixture. After a few minutes of scrubbing, use a wet towel to wipe the car's battery terminals. Use a dry towel to remove any remaining moisture. Let the terminals completely dry and apply a bit of petroleum jelly around each terminal. This prevents future corrosive buildup. Since we mentioned petroleum jelly, here is a trick that can save your battery during the coldest winter days. I bet that your battery died more than once during the winter season due to low temperatures. It is known that during cold weather the battery works harder due to increased electrical resistance and thickened engine oil. Before winter starts, make sure you clear the car battery's terminals with a wire brush. Once they are clean, reconnect and then smear with petroleum jelly. This will prevent corrosion and your battery will crank all winter long. Using soda such as Coca-Cola will help eliminate the corrosion from your car battery. Almost all carbonated soft drinks will in fact work for this operation. The carbonic acid content in these drinks helps to remove stains and dissolve rust deposits. Disconnect the battery cables if they are not held together by corrosion. If that's the case, pour a small amount of soda around the terminals and wait until it stops fizzing. You should be able to remove the cable afterwards. Pour soda over the white powder on the terminals and use a toothbrush to scrub any remaining corrosion. Dry the cables and terminals with a, power, a paper towel and that's pretty much it. Reconnect the cables and smear some petroleum jelly. These are useful tricks to revive a dead car battery, but you should keep in mind that you can shorten the lifespan of your car's battery. If no other options are available, you can try them to start your car and drive to the nearest service station. Alright, so... Uh, some good information there, even stuff that I hadn't heard before. I really hadn't heard about that Epsom salt there uh, before. But uh, good information. Uh, I really like the, um, just recently, uh, I think I've talked about it before, but uh, a secretary at work had uh, one of those battery chargers, but they look like one that you would connect your phone to. It's that, it's that small. Uh, but it was really one to charge your car, and I didn't think it was going to work. I was like, let me go get my jumper cables, and she goes, no, no, everybody says this works, and, and it worked, and her car was like dead, deader than a door now. Um, so I, I was so impressed, I went out and bought one. I didn't buy the same uh, same brand. I, I bought another one off of Amazon, uh, and uh, so impressed. I've been meaning to do kind of like a, a little review on it, and I actually had a situation where I did have to jump a vehicle, and, uh, and it, you know, it worked. I was blown away. And the cool thing is that you can use those little uh, chargers for, you know, charging up your cell phone or a tablet or whatever. So 
Uh, here in Houston, I wrote the manufacturer, and uh, they say you know you don't want to keep the battery in your vehicle during extreme temperatures. And in Houston, we get up, you know, especially in summertime, it gets really really hot. So what I've done is I've left all the connectors, all the the battery uh, cable connectors and all that kind of stuff, you know, in the truck. But uh, the main part, the battery, I keep with me in my backpack that I, you know, take with me inside to work and wherever I'm at. So I use it as a charger for my phone or my tablet or whatever I need. But also it works to charge the um, to charge the um, the the vehicle if I needed to. So that's something you probably want to invest in. I'll actually I'm gonna to link to that in the show notes as well. Uh if you haven't seen I haven't seen I think I saw one person, I think Gay over at Backdoor Survival did a, a little review on one. But I'm gonna to link to the one that I bought on Amazon if that's something that you might be interested in. Of course, I mean having jumper cables I think is important. Uh having a good set of jumper cables is important. I actually used my jumper cables yesterday uh with my secretary. She needed a jump. And so uh, you know, it's always good to have those there um i mean i could have just as easily busted out the the battery charger and and use that as well but i i just i just didn't it was just one of those things where i just grabbed my my cables um all right, so let's go ahead and move on. Because it's Wednesday, we do an interview. And so for those of you who are new to the podcast, um, I do the, the podcast rather late in the evening. And so I really don't have opportunities to um, interview people. I, I just haven't got around to doing that. Or I, and I really, to be honest, I don't, have, uh, I don't think I have the, the best uh, setup to be able to do audio recordings from somebody else that's calling in. I think it would. I think it would just. It wouldn't sound very very good. So uh, what I've chosen to do is do like written articles, or if the person that I am interviewing, if they have the ability to record, uh, which I've you know we've done some of those already before, where people uh, have uh, their own podcast or they have their own uh, ability to do that, their own um, hardware, then they record it and they send it over to me. But most people they type out their answers. I send them the questions. They type out their answers and send it back to me, and then I read them. And so. Uh, which is which is kind of cool too. It's a little different. It's kind of keeping with the audible format of this uh, of the podcast, which you know I kind of wanted to keep with. But uh, Tess, I've known Tess for a while. Uh, you know, Tess used to live in Houston. She's been over the house. I um, I uh, really appreciate everything that she has done for the preparedness community. I've you know her website was one of the first ones that uh, I've hit. For uh, you know, at, at the beginning, even before Prepper website, you know, I was I was reading her stuff, uh, and you know, her Prepper's Blueprint, which she's going to talk about here in the interview, I think is uh, it's an excellent, excellent book. I I do think it's one of the, like the second book you should get. Uh, I I always talk about you know it if you've been listening for a while. Doom and Bloom, Doctor Bones and Ersamies, the medical survival um, you know book. You need that one, the handbook. You need that one first. But then uh, I would definitely look at Tess's book as a as a real close you know second. Have that one as a second to uh, to have because there's so much information in there. So uh, and I believe I've done a review on that one as well on Prepper website. Um, so let's go ahead and just, you know, I'm babbling, but let's go ahead and get started in this interview and see what Tess has for us. Uh, we have a little surprise in there, or she has a little surprise in there for you. Uh, hopefully you're going to enjoy that one. All right, so here we go. Tell us a little about yourself and your preparedness. Please include why you started prepping. 
Preparedness has always been something that interests me. My father was a very prepared individual, and when we went through Hurricane Carla in the 80s, we were the only family on the street that bugged in. I was lucky to find a job at the American Red Cross in Dallas, Texas, and was cross-trained in disaster services. I was working at the Red Cross during the September 11th attack, and my chapter became the headquarters for dealing with the aftermath. This literally changed the very definition of disaster for me. Before 9-11, I was just as complacent as everyone else and thought that disasters were just a theoretical contingency, and in an instant, it became a reality. I was the one that took the phone calls and had to hear the panic in voices of those calling and looking for their loved ones. We all witnessed firsthand how unprepared our country was for handling this. Not just from the standpoint of having a lack of supplies, but we saw people stranded in airports for a week and also felt the impact on an emotional level as well. A majority of the disaster lessons I have learned have also been from personal experience. We went through Hurricane Ike in Houston, Texas, and looking back, we weren't as prepared as we should have been. Truth be told, we had grossly underestimated the storm's aftermath and were without power for three weeks. The temperatures were still hot in Texas at the time. The water sources were questionable. We had to throw all our food out. Gasoline was scarce. It was a nightmare. Not to mention our neighbors were dumping their septic tank waste into the ravine behind our home and mosquitoes were swarming us. When, you're, when you have small children looking to you for the answers, you begin to really question yourself and I promise myself that if I ever had to go through this again, I would be better prepared with supplies and skills. I learned a lot of lessons from that experience. This was my aha moment to really start prepping. My husband's moment came a few months after when he started noticing the economy didn't seem as solid as it once was. That was in 2007 and shortly after the housing bubble popped. As many of you know, a lot of people lost their homes, unemployment skyrocketed, and we were teetering on a verge of a major economic depressionary period. These two events helped me see just how quickly our world can change. The next time it does, I wanted to be ready for it. I started my website, Ready Nutrition, and used it to document my preparedness journey and help others in the process. What are your main preparedness concerns? What are you prepping for? I think we can all agree that there are a lot of potential threats out there that we should be paying attention to and preparing for. In fact, something I tell my readers is not to prepare for a singular event. We can all agree that when a disaster strikes, a great many things can go awry. In personal disasters, you could lose your job and then fall into financial disarray. Or there could be a disaster where we go off-grid, need to purify water, protect our homes, and use alternative cooking sources. So, I believe in preparing dynamically for multiple events where we use these preps as our lifeline. This way, it makes prepping more practical and affordable. One, one emergency I'm concerned about is an economic collapse. We are witnessing an era of total unpredictability. In this type of disaster, there are different levels and different depressionary periods that are part of the same cycle. Think of it as an ebb and flow where there are good economic times and bad economic times. A few years ago, the depressionary period was being compared to the worst depressionary period since the Great Depression. Some say we aren't out of this cycle yet, and the worst is still yet to come. So this is a disaster event to definitely put on your watch list. Two, I wouldn't dismiss the protest and rioting issues going on in our country. Civil unrest has become an increasingly common occurrence in America over the past few years, and it doesn't take a genius to see that if it continues to fester, we could quickly be staring down a societal breakdown. 
The third type of disaster I'm concerned about is a grid down emergency is grid down emergencies. Now these can be short lived or long lasting. The one I am concerned about are the long lasting ones. The longer the disaster, the more stressful it is on the community. When a community is unable to get their basic needs met, like a steady resupply of food and clean water, there is room for societal breakdown to occur. Has your preparedness changed over the years and why? Yes, in the 10 years I have been prepping, it has definitely changed. It's hard to explain, but I feel like when I started, I was using someone else's preparedness advice because I hadn't acquired skills and knowledge on my own. Then, when you immerse yourself into something, you find your own path and your perspective changes. Prepping has taken me on many evolutionary changes. I packed the bug out bags, created the prepper pantry, stocked supplies, and had finally found comfort in homesteading and learning sustainability concepts. Ultimately, we are all trying to find some peace of mind in this crazy world, and for me, it was living self-reliantly. Yeah, I think I... Uh, just a side note, I think I've kind of, we've kind of come to the same uh, point in our preparedness when I've been talking a lot about self-reliance and finally moving to that. So it's, it's really good to hear Tess talk a little bit about that. But it's true. I like that this aspect that she's talking about is, you know, as a new prepper, beginner, you're learning a whole, whole lot. Uh, but eventually you get to the point where you have acquired knowledge. Hopefully you're putting skills into place. And then you start coming up with, you know, the path that's right for you. You start coming up with the plan that's right for you. We talked about that yesterday. All right, continuing on. Tell us about your book. What is it about and why did you decide to write it? My first book was a cookbook for preppers to utilize their entire food supply. The Preppers Cookbook focused on 25 must-have foods for your preparedness supply and how to make the most of them including your perishable foods. There are over 300 recipes that include how to can foods, dehydrate them, use freeze-dried foods, as well as essential food preparation charts and lists of off-grid cooking supplies one would need to thrive. My second book, The Prepper's Blueprint, was based on an online series I did at Ready Nutrition called 52 Weeks to Preparedness. There was a lot of enthusiasm with this series and many readers asked that I turn it into a PDF. I wanted it to be more, much more. So I added more information, organized and transformed it into book in a book that encompassed all forms of disasters, both big and small. With all of the additional information added, the title even changed to The Prepper's Blueprint to help readers understand that preparedness isn't just about having a plan. It requires drawing out a blueprint to set a preparedness foundation you can build upon and rely on when the time comes. The book is a reference guide where I broke up the different aspects of preparedness into layers. I believe that to fully insulate yourself from a disaster of any kind, you need to have a layered effect with your supplies. This will create a well-rounded approach and ensure that you are prepared for the smallest disasters to the most severe circumstances. Within this 458-page preparedness resource are over 55 chapters divided into preparedness layers. Layer 1 is chapters 1-14. through 14 prepares you for those everyday disasters that have short-term effects, power outages, storms, injuries, and evacuations. Layer 2 is chapters 15 to 31. It's helped you to get ready for disasters that turn out to be much longer lasting, like economic collapse, long-term power outages, and pandemics, to name a few. Layer 3 is chapters 32 to 56. That prepares you for the long haul and complete Complete change of lifestyle, the end of the world as we know it, providing food and water once supplies run out, security, retreat properties, and long-term plans. What feedback have you received from your book that is the most surprising to you? 
One of the things I have most, I'm most proud of is that a lot of churches have purchased the Prepper's Blueprint to help prepare their congregation. I grew up in the church and knowing that there are folks out there trying to get their church members prepared is amazing. What part of your book would you like to make sure that readers pay careful attention to? One of my favorite additions to the book is the supplemental information at the end of the chapters. This supplemental information will stretch your skills and provide information ranging from how to make multiple water filters, what the great prepper movies to watch are, how to build emergency trauma kits, and more. Another aspect about the prepper's blueprint that I am proud of are historical examples of each type of disaster. We try to encompass a wide variety of scenarios to show people that a lot of this stuff has happened in the recent history and it can happen again. In each of the 56 chapters, we used real stories and events that have played out. So these types of events are likely. Sometimes bad things happen to good people and we have to prepare the best we can for them before they hit. Could you paste in a paragraph from your book that gives a good feel for what readers will experience? You know what? I'll do better than that. Here's a free download to the first chapter to help your audience get an idea of what the book will be like. So that's the little you know, gift that I was talking to you a little uh, about. The little surprise is uh, the free download of the first chapter of the blue, uh, the Prepper's Blueprint. So I'm going to be linking to that on episode 58 on the show notes. If you'll go uh, check that out, you'll be able to link to that and download that free PDF. Uh, if you're like most preppers, you know a lot of preppers they find those free PDFs and they download them and uh, and use them. So definitely you're going to want to go check this one out and uh, download this one. All right, so what else would you want preppers to know about your book? The book was written for the beginning prepper in mind to help them create a preparedness supply from the ground up, but a lot of seasoned preppers have also used it to make sure there aren't any holes in their preparedness endeavors. Once you finish the book, you can feel confident knowing your supply and knowledge can handle short and long-term emergencies. Tell us about your website. When I started Ready Nutrition, it was to help me document my preparedness journey. Little did I know that so many of us were looking to achieve the same goal. My website started out as a collection of preparedness tips and lists, but as I grew in preparedness, so did my website. I realized that preparedness is not only having supplies in place, but skills. You never know how long you will be off the grid, and you may have to fall back on knowledge that your ancestors used for survival. With this in mind, my website encompasses a wide range of topics like preparedness, but also information on homesteading, organic gardening, off-grid survival skills, hunting, sustainability, and even healthy living. Do you have any upcoming projects that listeners might be interested, interested in? We have some big plans coming up in the next few months for Ready Nutrition. The best way to stay up to date is to sign up for our newsletter, and you can hear about them in real time. I will share these that these plans have to do with preparedness, sustainability, and self-reliance. All right, so uh, that's a tease. Way to tease us there, Tess, uh, and not, let it, not letting us in on your big surprise or your big plans. But uh, definitely, we'll be watching that uh, at Ready Nutrition. And you can go check out her newsletter as well. Uh, sign up on her website. Um, the next question is, will you give us two or three examples of your work that you, like, that you would like to share with uh, our listeners? And so uh, she has here, 52 Weeks to Preparedness is a free step-by-step -step guide to get, your, get you prepared for short-term and long-term emergencies. 25 Must-Have Survival Foods, Put Them in Your Pantry Today, is building an emergency pantry in one of these lifelines that takes both time and planning to make it fully functional. Ideally, you want to store shelf-stable foods that your family normally consumes as well as fine foods that are multidynamic and serve many purposes. 
The last one is be prepared. 20 must-read articles to get started prepping. We all need to start somewhere. These 20 articles will get you started on the right preparedness path. So I will be linking to those three articles there uh, on uh, episode 58 show notes. So again, you're going to want to come to the website and hit all that, uh, you know, hit all this extra stuff that I'm linking to today. A lot of good stuff. All right, so what would you like to say to the Prepper Website Podcast listeners? I know that prepping can be overwhelming. Let's be honest, there's a lot of moving parts. Just keep putting supplies away and continue educating yourself on off-grid compatible skills. The skill sets part, part is really important. When you run out of your preps, you, re- you will need to be able to fall back on this knowledge to better sustain yourself. Concentrate on learning how to forage in the wild, grow your own food sources, raise livestock, hunt and fish, and even start learning how to create natural medicines from herbs. Do some research to see if there are any community classes in your area to help you learn how to can goods or master gardening courses. The more you know, the more prepper knowledge you will have to apply to those skills you are learning. I would also suggest that you invest in a good prepper library. While we live in a digital world, we are preparing for off-grid living. So, if you have a reference library that you can turn to in an off-grid emergency, you will have everything at your fingerprints. Where can I find you? And so, uh, I have links here to, of course, readynutrition.com. And then Facebook. Uh, There's two Facebook pages, Tess Pennington and then Ready Nutrition. Twitter and then also Pinterest. So, I will link to those at at, uh, episode 58 uh, the show notes there. And uh, I'm also going to be linking to the Amazon, uh, the Prepper's Blueprint, and also the Prepper's Cookbook. The Prepper's Cookbook is a, also a good book as well. And so uh, you definitely want, you know, if you'll go over to Amazon uh, and just go kind of check it out and check out the reviews, uh, that might be a, a book that you're going to want to purchase a little bit later on down the road. But definitely, if you're looking to buy, uh, you know, a really good reference manu- manual, you want to look at the Prepper's Blueprint if you haven't already. A lot of good stuff. Uh, Don't forget to go over to episode 58 in the show notes section and then go ahead and click on, uh, you know, all the the things that uh, the the test is offering here, the free download, and then uh, those three articles that are really uh, seem like they're going to pack a punch. There's going to be a lot of information in there. All right. So thanks so much, Tess. Let's go ahead and move on to our next article. This comes to us from Survival Sullivan. And this one is how to stockpile emergency water, something that we all need to take into account. And and really, um, I know I'm kind of giving commentary here before, but storing water is hard. I mean, if because you have the issue of space, and you want to make sure that it is just like your food. You want to make sure that it is in a cool, uh, you know, especially water. You don't want it to be in you know direct sunlight. You don't want it to be in the heat. You don't want to be storing it in your garage. That kind of stuff, or at least if you're storing it in your garage, you're not storing it so that you can uh, use it to drink. You know, you might be using storing it to flush the toilets or whatever in a grid down situation, but you're not really storing it to, to drink because it, it can get really hot. Well, depending on where you live in Houston, in Texas, it's going to get hot. But the issue with storing water is going to be space, uh, and so that's that's the big issue here. Um, but this one goes through stockpiling water. So let's go ahead and go through this one here uh, and talk about this one. Uh, one of the greatest challenges to preparing your retreat for when SHTF is knowing how much water to store and how to store it. In a disaster situation, you never know what may happen to your water sources. 
You may be unable to collect water for a long period of time or have to fend off zombies from stealing your water or may be unable to so much as leave your home. Any number of things could cause you to lose your water sources. The big question then it, the big questions then are how much water should you store and how do you store it? Planning for the day you can't turn on your faucet for water will be crucial to you to your survival in a disaster. Because you never know what will happen at Teotihuacan, we are going to assume that in the event of, the, of a disaster, you will be completely unable to access any external sources of water. This means you will only be able to live off of your stockpile alone. While this may not be true, it is better to plan for the worst than to plan for the best. The first thing to consider when planning how much to stockpile is how much water you and your family will need to consume in order to survive. One common mistake a lot of preppers make is hoarding too much food and not enough water. To explain this, we refer to the rules of three. You can live for three minutes without air. You can live for three hours without shelter. You can live for three days without water. You can live for three weeks without food. If you're pre preparing now, though, you have the luxury of being able to plan to have all four of these things. But taking one for granted and over-preparing for the other could be a fatal mistake. One common guideline for storing water is that one active person will generally need a gallon of water per day. Half of this will be consumed, while the other half is for personal hygiene. This technically means you can store less and simply not be as hygienic, but that comes with its own problems for survival as well, namely disease and other such things. Here are some other questions. Is anyone in your household sick or injured? Is anyone in your household pregnant or nursing? Do you have any children in your household? Do you live in a very hot climate? If you answered yes to any of, any of these, you may have a greater demand for water up to double or triple the normal amount. We will continue with this assumption that one person needs one gallon per day, but keep in mind that any extenuating circumstances you may have that may alter individual water needs. Here's a table with some easy calculations for stockpile. So there's a nice little table there, for instance, uh, you know, one uh, member of a household for three months is going to need nine, nine, 90 gallons, uh, but let's ju just jump to like four, uh, you know, four number, uh, number of four people in the household, uh, length of time three years, you're going to need 4,380 gallons, all right? So yeah, that's, that's crazy there, but uh, just a nice little graphic you can kind of go look at. Again, this is accounting for consumption and personal hygiene only. This does not include pets, gardening, or any other use for water. Pets generally need a gallon of water every three days, depending on the size of the pet and type. However, if you're bugging in, we will simply assume that you are unable to tend to livestock or outside gardens. You will need some water for cooking, but this is dependent on what food you are cooking and how much of. If you are limited on your fuel as well, you may not even be doing much cooking. So this number really depends on your situation. Our advice, stockpile what you know you'll need based on your table above, then stockpile some more for cooking and other needs you may have. There are a number of containers available for storing water. However, some are more suitable for this purpose than others. For example, you should generally not reuse milk jugs to store water as it is nearly impossible to fully remove the milk proteins from the container and these will eventually provide a habitat for bacterial to grow in. Other types of plastic may release toxic chemicals into your water. So, how do you know what's safe? First, let's talk about plastic containers. There are seven commonly used types of plastics. Polyethylene terephthalate or PET or PEAT polyester, high-density polyethylene or HDPE, 
polyvinyl chloride, or V or vinyl PVC, low-density polyethylene, LDPE, polypropylene, PP, polystyrene, PS, other polycarbonate, PC. The three types that are considered safe for common use around food and drink are high-density polyethylene, or HDPE, low-density polyethylene, LDPE, and polypropylene, PP. Uh, just uh, FYI there, usually on the bottom of containers, you're going to see uh, those letters there. All right, so however, this is very dependent on the condition that the containers are stored in. For example, PET or PEAT is commonly used in soda bottles and juice bottles, and if you're not storing water for a very long time and the bottles are not stored in hot conditions, the likelihood that PET or PEAT will leak chemicals into water is low. Even with plastic containers made from HDPE or LDPE, however, there is a chance that they can leak the chemical non-lethal. Short explanation, this is bad into your water if they are stored in sunlight. Polypropylene or PP is commonly used for hot food storage because it will not leak chemicals with the application of heat. What it really comes down to is this. Then there can, where can you store your water? Do you have a cool area available that doesn't get any UV exposure? Then you may be able to simply reuse two liter bottles from soda to build up your stockpile, given that you properly wash all the containers you use. This might be a good option for urban dwellers who lack space to store enormous containers of water. But for anyone who owns a home or retreat or both, it might be feasible to store your water in even larger containers. For this purpose, there are containers sold specifically for water that comes in sizes from 2.5 gallons to 500 whopping gallons. Some great BPA-free options are below. In a water brick, in a 5-gallon jug, in a water barrel, or in a water storage tank. Many of these containers can also be bought at retailers like Walmart, Target, your local sports store, and more. There are plenty of options for whatever space you have to store your water in and for how much water you want to store. Some containers are collapsible while some are meant to be stacked. The container you buy depends on your situation. For plastic, so long as you make sure to check what kind of plastic it is and how you store it, you should be good to go in an emergency. What if you want to store your water in a container made of some other materials, however? Glass is another option for storing water, but may be less convenient than plastic for a number of reasons. First, it is heavy and easily breakable. Like plastic, you will need to be sure it is food-grade glass and stored in a cool, dark area. Some upsides, glass is impermeable, so it can be stored near other supplies without the water being at risk, and it will be much harder for pests or rodents to get into. Over time, vapors from stored fuel or other chemicals can penetrate plastic. On top of that, plastic is easier for pests or rodents to get into. Not only that, but glass will be much harder for zombies to steal because of its weight. Not that it would be easy to make off with a 260-gallon water tank in the first place. The best option for storing water in a metal container is by far and away stainless steel, but one major downside is the large stainless steel containers for water cost much more than plastic. Some upsides are that, like glass, stainless steel is impermeable, so vapors from nearby stored chemicals won't eventually leak into the water. It's also lighter than glass, so if you want to move your stores around, it will be easier. Metal can also be stored somewhere that stored somewhere that gets a lot of light, unlike glass and plastic. However, you should still check that your stainless steel is food grade, and on top of that, you'll probably want some sort of protective coating on the inside to prevent the chlorine from your tap water corroding the steel. No matter what you decide to store your water in, do your research on the material 
and precautions you need to take. You don't want to end up in a disaster with contaminated water. In fact, because it can be so easily contaminated, most preppers filter their water in various ways to be sure it is still safe. Watch these YouTube video reviews for more. So there's two videos there that you want to look at. How do you filter and purify your water? There are a variety of options for filtering your water stockpile, including using a store-bought filtration and purification system. These come in all shapes and sizes. It's best to choose the one that suits your situation best. Be sure to look for a system that both filters and purifies the water, as these are technically two different processes, one to remove dirt, sediment, etc., and one to remove viruses and bacteria. Boiling the water to kill any viruses or bacteria that may be present if you use this method, be sure to boil the water for at least three minutes to ensure that it is safe. Using a chemical like bleach, about eight drops to every gallon, iodine or chlorine, you should take care with chemicals as the materials that you store your water in could react with them. You also will want to make sure that you don't use too much as this could be harmful when you drink the water as well. Even if your water was clean when it went into storage, there's no guarantee that it's still as safe after being stored. Having a filtration and purification system in place ensures that your storage water remains safe for consumption. Some people even suggest rotating your water supply every six months to a year, but there's very little evidence for its effectiveness. Okay, another, uh, another video there to, to watch. Should you have more than one stockpile? Short answer, yes. Many people recommend having more than one stockpile in more than one place if you want to be truly prepared. This is a great option for anyone who has a retreat or a lot of space because it ensures that you have a location for bugging out when you need to. This also means that if your stored water supply in one place happens to go bad for whatever reason, you'll have somewhere else with water to run to. It's always, a good, it's always good to have a backup plan even for your backup plan. So very, very true on that. All right, so uh, good article on this and a lot of options. I do want to say when he was talking about the metal containers, uh, we do have uh, Danuba um, water or stainless steel jerry cans. They are an advertiser on Prepper website. And so you can go over there. They're on the right-hand corner. And uh, they are more expensive, but uh, they're, they're the steel, the stainless steel that he was talking about. So if you're wanting to look for something like that, and they're in that you know jerry can style uh, look. So anyway, uh, you go check them out on uh, at prepperwebsite.com. So lots of good information here, something to think about. I mean, if you're you know in your house, you re really want to look at for you really want to look at all the situations, all the the possible places where you can store water on the inside where it's you know it's staying at at uh, a normal temperature where you're not going to have extreme temperatures out there. Um, you know, uh, if you're bugging out. Uh, you know that that's a whole different story you're going to have to have water filters and purifiers and you're going to have to have multiple means to purify water but that's that's one of the big dilemmas um i also believe in the in the water bob so i have one of those that you know it's a big inflatable um blow up water tank basically is what it is you put it in your um bathtub and you, you fill it up you know connect it to uh the, the faucet and it just it, it fills up a hundred gallons worth and it has its own little pump connected to it it's a one-time use so once you fill it up that's it but uh i think that is something i think they're about thirty dollars on amazon that's something to 
to have in your, uh, you know, at home uh, in case you need to, you know, in case you, you know, you're starting to see that things are going crazy and you want to make sure that you have water. That's an easy way to store 100 gallons of water, right? So water is always that, that big thing that we're always going to be thinking about and always, uh, you know, uh, trying to figure out how we can store more of it. Because I don't think you can have too much water. Uh, I just, I, I really don't. I think that's one thing that you always are going to be uh, wanting to, uh, you know, to have more of. All right, so good stuff today. We got a lot, man. There's a lot of stuff here, um, a lot of good stuff. I'm going to be linking to a lot of stuff on the show notes of episode 58. So come over to the Prepper Website Podcast dot com and. Um, uh, you know, check out all this, the good stuff from Tess over at Ready Nutrition, and then linking to stuff that we have on Amazon and her articles and and uh, the free download and all that good stuff. Uh, lots of it uh, over there. Hey, if you if you get a chance and you haven't done it already, you might want to sign up for the new Prepper website newsletter. It's uh, it's connected on all my sites, but uh, you know, when, once you sign up for that, you get the the free e-course, living a, a more self-reliant life. You automatically get enrolled in that. And then I'm also able to send out other things that are going on. I've been sending out like one, uh, you know, one email uh, a week, kind of sending it out with some information that I, you know, extra information that I find that I don't put other places. Um, you know, I'm able to share different things with you uh, that I normally wouldn't do uh, on other newsletters. And then also uh, one facet of it that uh, I think it's important, but I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't always talk about it, but if for some reason things got crazy and internet shut down or uh, prepper website got shut down or I needed to get something out to you really quickly uh, that was going on, I can send that out through an email, right? And, I, and so if you're a part of that, I can send that out that way. And so that's a way to stay connected because that uh, email list is not connected to prepper website. It's, uh, you know, I go through MailChimp there. I do pay for it. So, uh, you know, that's, that's part of it. But I, I did want to have something that was valuable to uh, to the community out there, and so that's why I, I do pay for it so that I get some of the other options out there and able to do some of the other things. But uh, I think the uh, the e course I think it's it's just it's worth it as well. And so I think I've been getting good feedback from that, so I appreciate that. If you get a chance, come by the website, drop me a line in the comment section, or hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I always love to hear from uh, people out there that are listening to the podcast and who are readers of Prepper website. All right, so. That's it for today. Choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.